A Podshape production. Have you ever lost something? Maybe it was your keys, your mobile phone, or something more valuable. To find them, you retrace your steps. You look in all the places they're most likely to be. And sometimes you look in places where they're probably not, but just in case. Sometimes when things go missing, you blame other people. You ask them if they've put them somewhere, if they've seen them. You sometimes think the worst. Maybe they've been stolen, taken from you when you weren't looking. Some of those theories that you come up with when something goes missing are far-fetched. You blame and have unreasonable thoughts. Those themes will be explored in this podcast, but not with insignificant material things, but with a person. This is the story of Desmond Francis Carr, who was last seen at 3pm on August 2, 1979, and then he disappeared. Episode 9, A Slight Deviation In my hunt for answers about what happened to my Uncle Des, who went missing 40 years ago while working on a road roller in northwestern Australia, we've turned up two new bits of information that police are now following up on. There is a theory about a man who saw him two days after he was reported missing. Peter Connolly swears he saw Des and that when he reported it to the police, they didn't do much with the information. On the other hand, police records say that Peter was questioned extensively by police, and he was even taken to the area where he thought he saw Des. Peter disputes this. With the police, they definitely did not. Absolutely, definitely did not. There is another unproven theory about a body that was found about 800 kilometres from where Des was last seen. The description of the body closely matches Des's size, clothing and hair colour. This, too, is being followed up by police. And, of course, we believe this podcast will help expedite a coroner's inquest into what really happened. My family has now started trawling garages and old boxes, trying to find more information that might help answer some of these mysteries. This podcast has opened up some old wounds, which may not have healed in the 40 years that have passed. I've mentioned previously there was a funeral of sorts, more like a memorial service that was held about a year after my uncle's disappearance and a cross planted at the site where Des was last seen. You can see this area and also some pictures we've uploaded at our website, whereisdes.com. In searching these old boxes, a few family members have come forward with some old relics from around that time. One was a book that Gwen Moyer, my auntie, had written in. It contained the names of people who attended the memorial service that was held for Des and some of the messages they left. To give some context on the sort of person my uncle was and also how he was regarded back then, we thought we could share some of them with you. These excerpts were all written on the 2nd of August, 1980. The first comes from Gwen, Des's older sister who passed away some years ago. In remembrance 
of my darling brother Des. If you only knew how much I wished you were here with us today. Thoughts will be with you forever, wherever you are. Love, Gwen. This next note really broke me up. It broke me up because it was written by my mum. I was only 10 when she wrote this note with no idea of what mum must have been going through. Des, I love you. I miss you. What more can I say? Come home and see me soon. Cheryl. There is a list of around 80 people who attended the service at the church in Subiaco in Perth in 1980 and Gwen made a note of each one. The last note in this handwritten account of my family's heartache came from my grandpa, Frank Carr. He wrote simply, Thinking of you always, Des, my hopes are that you are still alive. God be with you. Lots of love, Dad. In the last episode, we talked about a body that had been found in 1988. This body was the same size and build as Des. The clothes that were found were similar to what Des was wearing. There was a few personal items that were dug up when this body was discovered, and the one that stuck in my head was a Toyota key. I wanted to know if my uncle owned a Toyota at the time of his disappearance. From what the family can recall, he owned a Holden, so I thought not much more to follow up there. As I mentioned, we've been trawling old photos and archives to find anything that could help connect the dots. And then this happened. A photo with Des sitting in front of a truck. He's kneeling down, wearing his work clothes, with a beer in his hand. The truck was a Toyota. It looked like it was taken at the main roads camp in Thangu. You can only see a partial license plate, the last numbers being 269. Could this be the truck? The Toyota truck connected with the body that was found in 1988 and was never identified. As I've mentioned before, I'm not an investigative journalist, but some of these things are just happening. If we could connect the truck that Des was standing in front of with the key that was found on the body in 1988, then that could lead to finding out that the body was actually my Uncle Des. Is this a long shot? Am I clutching at straws? I don't think I am. Surely the police would want to hear about this new information. I've sent an email to the police with the photo along with my theory and I'm awaiting a response. I'm eager to push through to a next step but at the moment I feel like I'm the only one. There are a lot of missing people in Australia and my uncle's case is what you would consider a very cold case. There are far more current cases that police could focus on. I'm not blaming police. It's like finding a needle in a haystack and from previous conversations there is only a handful of missing persons detectives in WA dealing with a substantial amount of missing people. That was actually one of the other things that came up in 1979, which was brought up by Gwen's husband, Sid, who we never included in the podcast to this point 
because we thought it may seem like we were unhappy with what the police have done to date. However, in our search through some of these old boxes, I kept reading a story of another man that disappeared a few days after my uncle in Broome. He was a Japanese pearl diver who fell overboard about 100 k's off Broome. He was working on a boat called the Kim and it was seven nautical miles off the shore when he fell into the water wearing a tracksuit on Monday night, the 6th of August, 1979, four days after the searches had begun for my uncle. Now, I haven't formed an opinion of what should have happened, but my uncle Sid had a view that was shared by my grandpa. Good afternoon. Uncle Sid, it's Jay again. How are you going? Not too bad, mate. So? Yeah, really well, really well. I just wanted to talk some more about that um, that search for the diver that you mentioned to me um, on the phone earlier. They couldn't get any police from that area to come and help or anyone to organise a plane or anything. I would say a lot of people were looking for the diver and also the fact that they had the VIPs from Japan there. I think a lot of the police were there just in case. Okay, so you're thinking that maybe the search wasn't as extensive as it could have been because of this missing diver in the city of Broome. Yep. We did follow up this story when Sid first called, and the police, as I expected, said... Yeah, from our records, there was a um, an incident in Broome which occurred during the late evening of the 6th of August where a Japanese diver has fallen overboard uh, from a pearling lugger which was travelling south-west of Broome. Now, that was not reported to police until the following morning, the 7th of August, from what I understand from the records. Uh, That would have taken, um, obviously, uh, two major incidents in a short space of time for Broome, which would have definitely impacted on their resources. But in saying that, that search for the the, um, missing man overboard required different types of resources. And from what I understand, there was a number of pearl luggers that assisted in the search, along with some air support. Um, and from the from the information we have from the file, the search for Des um, was concluded on the sixth, and then this missing um, this man overboard incident was not reported till the seventh of August. My grandpa was unhappy with the police search, not just around the Japanese diver who he believed may have diverted attention from the search for his son but also that he really wasn't convinced police had done everything they could at the time. He was interviewed by the local paper in 1980. Relatives unhappy with search. Relatives of a main roads department worker who disappeared from a Kimberley worksite are dissatisfied with police efforts to find him. They said today that police had told them an air search had been made and that Aboriginal trackers had searched in vain for Desmond Carr. Frank Carr, Desmond's dad, said, When we got to his camp, his workmates swore there was no air search and they said the only Aboriginal there was a police aide who got lost in the bush himself. Mr Carr and Mrs Moyer, his daughter, said that after they insisted at the Broome police station, two very helpful sergeants were assigned to accompany them to the camp. 
Eight days after Des went missing, the sergeants led a second search by MRD workmen, while Mr Carr and the MRD foreman did an aerial search in an MRD aircraft. A senior officer at Broome Police Station declined to comment on the allegations. I want to say again, I'm not accusing the police of anything, but it is possible the focus moved from our uncle to this missing diver four days after Des went missing. It is understandable that resources would have been more stretched in a small town like Broome with two missing persons in as many days. It feels like that's what my pop and some of my family believed as well. I should only go with what's written in the official police report. However, it's impossible as a family member not to explore some of these allegations. They were made over 40 years ago and now because of this podcast, they seem to surface again. This is not some wild theory that has had 40 years to grow into a bit of a yarn, but more what my pop had believed all those years ago, and as I explored, sound more plausible. So, we've got a bunch of things to follow up on. I am a little bit at the mercy of how fast some of these allegations can be explored. Certainly... I'd like them to move a little faster than they have over the last 40 years. We will keep chasing to find closure to the disappearance of Des. There are over 38,000 long-term missing person cases in Australia, and the story you've just heard is one of them. We want to continue to help bring these emotional stories of ambiguous loss to you so we can spread the word and hopefully get some closure for the families. For as little as the price of a coffee a month, you can help support us to keep creating this content. Just head to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes.